This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Welcome to Mom and Mind, where we dive into all aspects of perinatal mental health and wellness related to pregnancy, birth, loss, postpartum, and new parenthood. It's so much more than postpartum depression. We raise the volume on all of these topics in the hopes that someday everyone will have the support and info that they deserve before they need it. Please note this podcast is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. Welcome to Mom and Mind. I'm Dr. Kat. In our episode today, I am joined by guest Emily Adler-Mosqueda, who's going to be talking about her personal experience through postpartum depression after her second child. She experienced postpartum depression late in her second postpartum, and since then has become an advocate for mothers and the postpartum time. She's going to be touching on what it felt like for her to be going through postpartum depression with a second child and feeling less support than she felt with her first child. She's also going to be talking about what it felt like to come to terms with having postpartum depression and realizing it at around eight months, and very specifically how her profession shaped and was shaped by her experience. Emily is a bilingual pediatric speech-language pathologist, associate clinical professor, and lead clinician of the Young Child Center at the University of Oregon. She is a mother of two young daughters. She has become an advocate for mothers in the postpartum time. Emily teaches about parental mental health factors as they relate to communication disorders to her graduate students. She hopes to help shift the cultural understanding of how long the postpartum time is and the issues that can and do arise after six months postpartum. She has completed a memoir manuscript about her postpartum journey, and she will be sharing some of her experience with us today. She has also authored free bilingual children's books, one called My Big Feelings and one called The Big Bad Virus. She also shares with us a little bit of insight to what normal language development is for babies, which I think will be really useful for especially all of the anxious parents to hear and give some really, really sound advice and perspective on how to help your child with language development if you yourself are suffering and not feeling like you're able to engage with your child the way you'd like to. So let's get right in and meet Emily. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, thank you so much for being having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to get your perspective and hear your experience on our episode today. I'm sure you'll bring a really valuable perspective to a lot of our parents based on your profession. But certainly, I would love for you to start wherever you're comfortable with your personal story. Sure. It was with my second daughter that that things went awry mm-hmm. or just I I really kind of had the biggest breakdown of my life to have some really big breakthroughs. My husband and I had some assumptions about being repeat parents that we, I mean, we definitely knew more what, what we were doing the second time than we did the first time. And we're making some adjustments of what we had learned with our first daughter, with our second, and we're kind of cruising along. And, you know, the typical fourth trimester had some bumps in it, but nothing significant. And I went back to work and then things really started to kind of crack more regularly. And then it was really at eight months postpartum that I, everything kind of had to come to a screeching halt. I had mm-hmm. to take a leave of absence from my job. I was so sleep deprived and I was, I really couldn't function that well. Mm-hmm. And 
we really started to kind of round, you know, gather the wagons and see, okay, what did I need? We considered having me start pharmaceutical medication. Um, I definitely needed some supports. And I'm a really sensitive person. And so we we knew that a pharmaceutical response was possible, but we wanted to try some natural things first. My husband's a doctor of Chinese medicine, and we hadn't really looked at the situation for what it really was that I was physically, emotionally, spiritually depleted. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of went to work getting me well. I started doing regular counseling. I saw I had acupuncture really regularly, found out my adrenals were really shot from having the baby. I also started writing a lot because I was finding myself in this headspace that was really unfamiliar to me and, and scary. And then also being trained as, in, as a scientist, as a speech language pathologist, I was trained to ask a lot of questions. And so I, right. was, I did that and turned it to myself. I'm like, okay, how did I get here? Mm-hmm. What, what went awry? How was this birth different than my, my first birth? And okay, I, so I had Pitocin way, way more than I did. With, I pretty much didn't have it with my first birth. Okay, what, what can Pitocin, what's the relationship between Pitocin and, and depression? And, and I was like, okay, I have, I have a question to pose. You know? So mm-hmm. I went to, this, went to the research and found some answers. And I was like, oh my gosh. So I really started educating myself Mm -hmm. to get myself through this really dark time, as well as writing about it, because I was just needing to kind of process it in a deep way. And Mm -hmm. I was uncovering a lot of personal realizations of my upbringing and my Mm -hmm. childhood and my cultural identity and all these things that just, I guess, were ripe ripe for looking at. Mm-hmm. When you've had a second child and it was surprising that it was so late. It's like, why, why is no one talking about this? And why, why wouldn't a woman who gets, has depression symptoms, you know, eight, nine, 14 months postpartum, have it not automatically be related to their pregnancy? Unfortunately, because of my husband's medical background and vantage point that is different than Western medicine, he's like, it makes perfect sense that mm-hmm. it's related to your pregnancy. And I'm so grateful that he has and had that knowing and right. the skill set to to share with me and help me and help the women in his own practice. So yeah, absolutely. So since that big experience, I've been you know writing about it. Um, I'm hoping to publish a memoir about the research that I found and the things that I thought about. I you know I kind of met my inner critic and mm-hmm. befriended my my inner child and kind of saw how all these players in my mind could be there to help me and support me once I knew what they were. Right, um, for sure. And yeah, and so, and, and I also wanted to support other moms. I mean, I, being a pediatric speech-language pathologist, I started to be worried at that eight-month, nine-month mark for my own, for my own child. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I'm not able to give her the language input that I, I, I want to be and that I gave to her sister, what do I do about that? So that became mm-hmm. a big job for me in the sense of a, a priority, more so a priority. And that was something else that, you know, besides taking care of myself, I wanted to be sure that our, our second daughter was also, that her language development was attended to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I would love to ask a couple of questions about your journey and and how it unfolded. In and around that eight-month postpartum mark, what, after you had, you know, had some time to reflect and heal a little bit, what are some key factors that contributed to this later onset for you? I was in denial that I suffered from depression. I, since high school, had dealt with seasonal depression. Mm -hmm. And I thought because it was seasonal, it didn't categorize me as having depression. Mm-hmm. It was the stigma of having depression or being someone who was depressed is yeah. is is big, yep. and I didn't disclose to my practitioners that I suffer from depression. So I think that kind of set me up to not have me be on their radar. I my depressive uh, episodes would would not be something that I would show or talk about, and so it was kind of secret, even to myself in a way. So I think that cumulative sleep sleep disruption and disturbance. I mean, the newborn time is is something, but then there's different sleep regressions, and then going to work. And I already had another, I had a three year old, another child, and it was just not getting enough sleep was was not yeah. <laughs> d- d- 
just that doesn't work. Right. <laughs> Sleep is so is so paramount and so foundational to everything. And then I had a lot of just like historical, I, I guess I can say it's historical, it's still a work in progress of perfectionism. Mm-hmm. And I think different cultural understandings, family culture and and understandings of what it meant to be a mother and what I was responsible for and that I needed to do everything and that asking for help it was physically, it was physically challenging. Like it gave me physical, it was like, it's even hard to say it. Like it was hard for me to ask for help. Yeah. And it's gotten easier to override my inclination of the voice inside to say, you don't need to do that. You're, mm-hmm. you know, good mothers don't do that. I mean, just these lies that my critic was telling me and then to identify the source of those things of like, oh, it's my inner critic. It's not, I mean, it's real in a sense of my perception, but they're not really real. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, th- I think this is kind of that trifecta and having had already been a parent, mm-hmm. I really felt that our Western culture was like very hands-off. Like you're a second time parent. You, you've mm-hmm. done this before. You should know what you sh- you're doing, highlighting the should, and mm-hmm. you know, you wanted to have another child. So you should be able to handle it. I just, I felt like that was also kind of, I don't know, in my family, like complaining is not, you don't complain. And so I felt right. like if I shared my struggles, I would be complaining and that I didn't want to be someone who complained or be perceived as someone who complained. So yeah, it's a lot um, of pressure. Yes. Too much right. pressure, unrealistic but, pressure. Unneeded. Absolutely. And how do you gauge rather the difference between complaining and asking for help or complaining and, you know, having real suffering? Certainly. Um, yeah, no, it's, it, you, you, you can't. Mm-hmm. And so I, I misjudged. I didn't value that I had needs because being high maintenance was something that I did not want to be. Mm-hmm. I did not want to be a woman who was quote unquote high maintenance <sighs> and that I had to debunk quickly. Oh, it's man. like, no, yeah. I have needs and I have legitimate needs. Right. I have basic human needs and, and other needs to, to be a person. And, and no one was telling me explicitly I couldn't have them, but there was just some understanding or wiring within me that was telling me, no, like you don't need to have needs. And so getting to, to realize that that is erroneous um, was also a part of my healing journey and, and now modeling for my children. Mommy needs to go to the bathroom. Mommy right. needs to eat <laughs> breakfast. You know, just not so much as I telling them that I need it, but also to remind myself and to have me hear myself say mm-hmm. it and to, to identify it and validate and model for them mm-hmm. um, that mommies can need, have needs and need to attend to them. And I'm a better mommy when I take care of myself first. Thank you for your patience, things like that. Yeah, fantastic. This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go. And that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Uliana Ortube. And she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. 
you get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. So by the time you were feeling really, or well, let me restate that. Um, by the time you really realized uh, that you weren't doing well, you maybe had been suffering for some time? Yes, I would say that very related to my, yeah, no, I had been suffering. I'd say around four months postpartum, I would just start to have, I would just, I had no patience and I would just get enraged Mm -hmm. and frustrated Mm -hmm. and irritated because I had needs that were not not being met. (laughs) And then I would meet my basic needs. I would tell, you know, just be a puddle of tears and my parents would come help me. My husband was working on a weekend and Mm -hmm. they would take the kids and kind of have these confused looks on their face. Like, oh my gosh, like you're so upset. Like, you know, why? And they would just take the kids and I would shower and sleep all day and then feel Mm -hmm. rejuvenated and like, okay, I, I, I'm good. I can keep going. And I would, and, but I would have these breakdowns every like six to eight weeks. Hmm. And, um, and I would, you know, my things that my three-year-old, my then three-year-old would say would just irritate me. I just had skin crawling irritation and yeah. agitation. And, and so I, I also didn't self-identify as having depression. Like I didn't, I thought someone being depressed was like in bed and couldn't get out of bed. Yeah. I was very functional and, yeah. and I was having these rage episodes versus being rendered, you know, just needing to be in bed. So I also didn't know the extent of symptomology that could be considered depression or a mix of depression and anxiety. So I, I wasn't educated maybe because it was assumed I was so well educated. Uh, Yeah, that happens. Um, That happens for sure. Um, But across the board, um, you know, people could use a little bit more heads up about this. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Sure. Yeah. And I also didn't feel connected to my pediatrician to like mm-hmm. share anything. Mm-hmm. I remember in the beginning, there was some inconsistency of who we saw for different appointments. And I didn't feel like I could disclose like how things were really going. And I think those were really missed opportunities. And like when I wanted to say something, but didn't know how to break the ice to say it, I was hoping they would give me the screener at that appointment. And they didn't. I was like, wait, where, where's my, where's the screener to like have it be the, the icebreaker? I'm like, and yes, I'm not doing well. Mm-hmm. And, and so if they had given it to me at my six month checkup, if they had the well baby checkup, they'd given it to me at the eight month, they really would have caught me then. But even at mm-hmm. the six month, I might've gotten picked up. Mm-hmm. Or at least seen for myself, huh, you, yeah, you, you're not doing so good. And like, that's okay. But it would have been that rough time for reflection for me Yeah, yeah that I, I didn't get. So um, that's definitely one thing that I've, I've talked to our pediatrician about and asked them to, yeah. to get to put into practice in their practice of screen mothers longer. It, you're, I would have been caught. I could have been supported. Good for you. That, that is awesome that you're able to go back to them and, and tell them about this, or at least advocate for other parents. Yeah. Oh, because right. It could be caught so much sooner. Mm-hmm. If we were looking more frequently. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So with, uh, yeah, that's a lot to go through. And I know we're just getting bits and pieces of what it was, was like for you, but the, the amount of like internal turmoil, I guess, uh, that it sounds like you were dealing with and nobody around you really, really knew. Right. My husband knew. And that was about it mm-hmm. until I kind of broke my silence to my mom and then my longtime gynecologist and was mm-hmm. just like, so being a parent, a mother of two is terrifying me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think I need help. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned your high sensitivity also in, in, in general, specifically to medication, but it sounds like also just as a person, a high, highly sensitive yes, person? Yes, yes. No, I mean, like I already had yard level noise canceling headphones to mm-hmm. be able to to tolerate my baby screaming and definitely sensitive to sound. Both my husband and I are, it's a strategy that we you know, use of, of, of putting those on, you know, even in this yeah. last week to yeah. just keep yeah. ourselves regulated. And mm-hmm. I'm very much the highly sensitive parent that Dr. Aaron describes really getting a lot out of her new book. 
And historically, I mean, I, I, I remember as a high schooler identifying as a highly sensitive person. And I did not put it together of that I will always be a highly sensitive person. <laughs> right. <laughs> so these right. major life transitions mm-hmm. to take that into account, that would have, you know, that would have, you know, hindsight, of course, is 2020. That would have yeah. been nice to like, okay, we're going to have this big change. Also, remember, you're highly sensitive and there might be some modifications and adaptations you need to make or account for yes. to yes. be successful. Totally. Absolutely. Um, So to that point, I think that you were noticing in in around eight months that you weren't doing so well and your conscientiousness around your own profession, but also around the development of your second daughter, you began to be worried uh, about her language development. Is that what I heard? Yeah, I was, I was concerned that I was putting her at risk. I mean, I, I was some not deeply familiar, but I had, you know, understood the research to say that kids who whose mothers are depressed and have, you know, varying mental illnesses are at risk for, for language delay. And that is something that I did research some more and, and found evidence to support. And so I was even more motivated to assure that whoever was spending time with my child, we did end up having to get a nanny to do some caregiving that I took the time to train her and tell her why I wanted her to name the things that my daughter was playing with, talk about things in a book and not, not just read the story, but talk about the items on the, on the page and, and notice what ones were also in the space with her too. Both my kids are raised bilingual. We speak Spanish, Spanish and English at home. And to, you know, whoever could be speaking Spanish to the youngest, I mean, to, to all of them to, to do, to continue to do that and just t- Reminding people to keep talking to them, singing with them, engaging with them in a, in a typical way, not excessively, and that I couldn't do my part. So to help me mm-hmm. and to, to make sure that that was happening. For you yourself, were noticing more silence or less communication? Yeah, less communication or I just, I was, wasn't as talkative or interested in talking so much or I was just so mm-hmm. overstimulated and overwhelmed by the job of parenting that I I I would do the I would do the absolute necessary and the need to take a break and leave and and, and get away and so but that was also hard because the voice in my head that's not so positive would be like well but aren't you you know aren't you kind of being a little obsessive about how you're training the nanny or you know isn't that a being a little overbearing and and I really had to check that voice and say and per my professional hat of you know mm. no. I'm not being overbearing. I am being conscientious and I'm being thoughtful to to provide early intervention for my child so she doesn't have a language delay and isn't isn't impacted by what's going on with me. So kind of being clear with myself about why I was training the nanny or asking her to do things very explicitly, even though she had a lot of experience with kids and liked being with kids and was inherently great. I still made the effort to talk about these things in an explicit way that was uncomfortable for me to do, but I was really glad that I did it and it went really well and she was really receptive and, and I mean, I was paying her, so I mean, she should do it how I want her to do it. Um, Mm -hmm. But that was also uncomfortable for me to even get to that point of, of hiring someone to, to watch my kids. That was a whole nother mental Mental well, sparring. Sure. sure. <laughs> if you're a perfectionist, then you should be able to do it yourself. Is the, right. That's the whole line. Right. Um, obviously, we know that that's not like accurate. Um, right. You know, well, for one, perfection, perfection is impossible. And, and two, everybody needs help. Um, exactly. It, yeah. That's quite a lot of pressure. Yeah. And so you had mentioned in that process, some of the cultural factors uh, going into this that as the mother should be able to do everything. Yeah. My dad's from Mexico and my mom's from Minnesota. And I just by observing, I think I just, I, but my dad has this from a really large family and my aunts and un- my aunts have had lots of kids. My dad's one of 13. So my grandmother mm-hmm. had a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. So I just assumed by observation, no conversation, just purely observation mm-hmm. and slightly erroneous observation that Everyone mm. loved motherhood. It was easy mm. there because they had multiple children and they seemed to be fine. Granted, I didn't see these people very often or were very close to them. So it was not really based in reality, but I was functioning off of like, well, if they can do it, then I can do it. And if, mm-hmm. if, if kind of complaining is not valued, right. I didn't want to complain about it because they would say, well, I, I could look to my aunts like, well, they had four kids and they seemed fine. And, you know, I only have two. I also worked with primarily Spanish speaking families and would see these mothers, um, Spanish speaking mothers doing 
amazing things with, you know, three, four children in a very small space and, you know, very little support during the day, you know, when mm-hmm. I would do some home visits and, and, and they, they were managing, they were, they were doing well. I was, you know, there to, to help with their, you know, a child that may have a communication delay, but I was just so in awe of how they did it all. Mm-hmm. And granted, it was yeah. one hour in their whole week <laughs> and I didn't see the other things. But in that time, I, I convinced myself that they were doing it all. They were living up to the, to the ideal of, of being mother and wife. And, and it was fulfilling in all ways. And that wasn't my experience. So I thought then I was failing. Oh, wow. No pressure at all. Uh, that, no. <laughs> that's so, it was just coming from every angle, even professionally. So, yeah. right. So in, in your own process, then you were aware of that you yourself needed help and that your daughter may need help uh, or support an early intervention, as you said. Uh, how did this experience you know, shape you in terms of your, your own postpartum depression um, intersecting with what you do for a living? It's really given me pause to, well, one, I my, the job that I'd been doing, I, I, I went back to it temporarily and then changed jobs. I went to, I made the shift to become a, a supervisor and, and tr- a clinical supervisor. And now I train graduate students to be speech language pathologists. And in my position as the director of our kind of young child clinic, I'm able to talk to them about maternal and paternal parental mental health as it relates to when we we talk about home visiting, which is a typical way of service delivery between birth to three and is, mm-hmm. you know, the natural environment is what's delineated as best practice for mm-hmm. IDEA and things like that, that we know when we're working with parents at, in kind of parent coaching, we need to be aware of their mental health, of their mm-hmm. background. Who's the adult learner that we have in front of us that is going to be collaborating and learning from us to then help their child. If they have a history of depression or if they're going through late onset postpartum, like what are the signs and symptoms that you might see doing an ethnographic interview? What are the signs and symptoms that you might see in your home visit that might give you a hint that they could use some more supports and you could make some suggestions of, you know, even educating them of, did they know that maybe they're having some symptoms of, right. of postpartum, that this could still be considered postpartum depression. And, mm-hmm. and here's, you know, the international postpartum, postpartum international resources or local resources and kind of, you know, put them yeah. in touch with community supports. But I think just having that awareness to have the patients to, and also gauge how mm-hmm. much, how many ideas do you give them if you know that they're in an era of, intense sleep deprivation, like really explaining to my students who fortunately the, the range of students is, you know, they can be typical, you know, kind of traditional students or or non-traditional students. So some students are young and don't have their own kids and may or may not want to be parents, but some, you know, have been parents and, and things like that. So there's a Mm -hmm. wide range of, of personal experience, but kind of going for that, the mean of, not having a child yet to educate them on these are the cognitive impairments that happen with sleep deprivation. Mm, and right. here can you kind of like how, how ready to learn is your learner who's in front of you? And there's, I'm trying to take in all these other type, be sure to take in all this, the context of each person and each sure. family to then be able to, to kind of attend to the needs of their child. best. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm really happy to hear you talk about this from the, you know, the parent-child perspective in part because with the clients that I meet with who are anxious or depressed um, or who have felt disconnected from their children in the early postpartum or for a little while, they are sometimes worried about their kids' language development or even worried that, oh my gosh, did because I was anxious or depressed, did I cause a speech delay or something like that? So I was wondering mm-hmm. if first you could give us a kind of a broad overview of what's kind of um, quote unquote normal <laughs> um, language development, whatever that means, but more specifically, like a, a range of when it's common for kids to start be talking. Yeah. 
Well, the amazing thing about kids and people and our human system of communication is that hearing is really important and hearing develops really early on. So our our babies, if, if they're born with typical hearing, have been hearing a lot of the pregnancy. And so they're already really used to our voice and our primed and ready to, they're orienting to us upon birth. Mm. And so they are, they can't see very well (laughs) for about the first (laughs) four months. They can't see very well. So talking to them and interacting with them, getting really close to their face, literally within like six to 12 inches of their face is important. So really getting up in their face and talking with them, but they're, they're gonna be making sounds. I was always amazed when my daughters made sounds that they didn't talk about in, in my training of like these squeaks and coo that like the, the degree of the, the range of coos that they could make when I you know heard it for myself for my own children was so amazing. So they'll be making all different kinds of sounds and beginning to then those kind of squeaks and and certain coos will stop pretty early on, but they'll make different sounds and different vowels and start kind of playing with their with their mechanism, with their voice, with their throat, with their the pitch or the sounds that they can make and be making what we call kind of front sounds, so kind of those M's and P's and B's, kind of where in lots of country cultures, you know, mama and ma are kind of terms for mother and ba or pa are terms for father because those other consonants come very early. So so sounds will come and and then also the children have you know, receptive language, so their understanding of language is developing all the time. So mm-hmm. It's kind of harder to gauge, but, you know, you talking about something and then they looking at it with you, their Mm -hmm. eye gaze is telling you, I know what you're talking about. I'm looking at what you're talking about. And so it's important to to kind of watch for and and the kind of showing, kind of show and tell of things so that you're sharing and it's called joint attention. You're both looking at something and maybe looking back at each other and then looking back at the item Mm -hmm. of the show And, and all those types of things are happening early on. I love your explanation of receptive language and so that parents can understand that even if their kids aren't specifically talking, they're still building and and working towards talking. So yeah, can you expand a little bit more on what talking might look like? Yeah. So they've been doing all this work, this foundational work with that receptive language. And they've also kind of been making those sounds, which is kind of, that's part of their expressive language. So they have started making different types of, of noises, but then you'll start to see around 10 months to 14 months, them kind of condensing those consonants, those B's and P's and some of the vowels they've been saying. And they might start saying some true words like mom, mama, or up, or more for more in English. And so you can expect to start to see just a handful of words in that range, about 10 to 14 months, because it also depends on the other gross motor and fine motor development that the baby's been doing, because they're really busy that first, those first 12 months. So really kind of talking starts after kids are walking, kind of coordinating their whole body is needed Mm -hmm. before they can coordinate their mouths. So more words maybe five to 25 words is kind of what you're looking at at 18 months. And then from 18 months to two years is you want to, you want to see a real explosion of language. I mean, it's really exciting because in such a short amount of time, they're really starting to put more words in their vocabulary and you're really getting to know this, this little person that you've been caring for. It's really exciting. It, it is. You just gave me a flashback to my, both of my kids language development periods and how fun it was and how amazing it was to just almost see their little brains work and um, trying to put stuff together and how fun it is for us, but how fun it is for them. And yeah, um, they're getting to be human expressive. <laughs> right. Right. It's really cool. And they're probably like, finally, you understand what I'm trying to tell you. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and to be sure those first, those, even those handful of, of true words in that 10 to 14 months, that could also include signs. So it could be a mixture of signs and spoken words. So all together, that would be the child's kind of vocabulary. And even as they go and our, their language is expanding, if they're still using signs as well, that also counts towards their kind of summative vocabulary. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy the Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of the Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. 
Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. Um, can I ask you another question? There's, um, I have a lot of clients who are they themselves are bilingual, and some of them are, you know, speaking just one language at home, which is not English. Uh huh. Um, and you know, letting other people speak to their kiddos in English, and their concern is like, oh well, my kids don't seem to be developing language as quickly as others, or like, how is this going to impact them? And I've heard that kids who are bilingual or in bilingual or multilingual homes sometimes do have a little bit of expressive timing difference. Is that true? It is true in the sense that they're juggling different languages mm -hmm. and they do not get confused. Mm -hmm. And they may be a little slower on the expressive part, mm -hmm. but then once they get going, they just, they've got both or they've got all three or however many they are, are managing. So it is not put the child at risk for a language delay by mm -hmm. any means. Mm -hmm. And actually they're getting to use more of their brain than monolinguals, which is fascinating to see in my daughters. I've seen problem solving. I feel like is more the agility to do that is improved because they're bilingual. So it, it will be on the, it's within normal limits um, mm -hmm. compared to a monolingual, but maybe towards the lower end of, of expressive, but they're also multilingual. So it's cool. comparing it to a monolingual, they may see, may seem on the slower side or the lower end of typical, but they're within four bilinguals, two bilinguals. They're strongly within normal limits. Super cool. The brain is yeah. awesome. I think it's really important that, um, that you're delineating that language is a, is a process mm -hmm. and not, it's not just, you know, if, if they're talking or not as, as part of language. Yeah, no, it's, think, it's so much more than that. We've got that receptive, yeah, yeah, that receptive language and then social language. So very early on, I like within weeks for my older daughter, I spoke only Spanish to her and she would look me in the eye and, and know that I was talking to her. Mm -hmm. I would start speaking English in her presence, close to her face, like same, same position and be speaking to my husband and her gaze would kind of look away and not be looking at me. And, and she could tell I wasn't talking to her. Mm -hmm. And then sure. I go back to speaking Spanish and she would just zoom in and be looking right at me, mm -hmm. focused at me. She knew who I, who she would, that she was being spoken to. Mm -hmm. And I, it's amazing to watch kind of the back and forth that can happen of, People talking to a baby and pausing and the baby making sounds and vocalizations back. Yeah. That's the beginning of a conversation. That mm -hmm. back and forth and is important. Just the fact that the baby is making noise is important. It may Absolutely. not be 
into words yet or sounds, you know, at the developmental stages, but that expressiveness is important. So for uh, for the parents out there who are dealing with depression or anxiety and are worried, uh, I guess, either about their, their child's language development or at least uh, are feeling maybe similarly to how you described you felt that not feeling like engaging, not wanting mm-hmm. to, to do that, what are or feeling like a lot of work to be able to engage in that way. You gave one tip, which is to find other people to do it and and have have some other people make sure that they're interacting. But what are some other things you could, uh, you yeah, what are some options for parents in terms of interacting with their kids and, and supporting language development when they themselves, the parent, is not feeling well? Yeah. First of all, I would say, you're, it's okay not to have someone speaking to your child all the time and to really tune into yourself and think about a time in your day when you do have energy. Think about what time of day that is. Um, and it may, it, it, hopefully it happens every day. You might have like five minutes. You feel like you could really be intentional and talkative. And I, it, it can be hard to, to find those moments because we don't feel our, like ourselves and right. we're struggling. And, you know, even that could be a tall ask. So again, having having a partner, having family members, friends that are like family, you know, and in, in, in the event of COVID, that's its own extra right. thing. Right. But, you know, periods of times where the, the baby can have someone talking to them or you yourself can talk about, you know, if you need to unload the dishwasher, talk about what you're doing. Doesn't have to be just like this one-on-one, undivided attention to the baby. Baby can be nearby. You're referring to them, glancing mm-hmm. towards them, but you know you need to fold the laundry or unload the dishwasher, or you're making the bed, and you can be talking about what it is that you're doing. Of like, oh, I'm folding, I'm folding your baby socks, and mm-hmm. next time is is you know my shirt, and here's daddy's red, you know sweatpants, and. So just kind of labeling and talking about things and maybe for the duration of the activity is all that you have to feel talkative right Mm -hmm. then. Mm -hmm. And your tasks got done that you feel like you needed to do and you were talking about what you're doing. So kind of you could check it off in your mind of like, okay, I gave gave them some input that was of quality. Mm -hmm. You know, reading a book and even just like looking at pages and having, you know, some silence is good too. Having the baby look. And you can just kind of point at what's what the baby's you know looking at. Lots of times for really young books, there's only like one or two images on the page. Mm-hmm. And so you can, you know, it's like, oh, there's the bunny. I see a bunny. Bunnies hop. You know, mm-hmm. there's probably only one word on the page. You could right. make up a story if you if that felt creative. Because also like the time you spend with your kids when you're not feeling great, you want to enjoy doing it. So thinking mm-hmm. of something that you enjoy and they enjoy and then making and if it hopefully if it's something that happens regularly, like in a routine, yeah. that's a great way to know that like, okay, tomorrow at the same time, I'm I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to this time and maybe it's five or ten minutes that you're really just kind of giving intention to be more talkative, talk about what you're doing, label things for the child. And then other times be a maybe you, maybe you don't feel talkative, but you're having music on for the baby mm-hmm. and then they're going to go for a walk with somebody or you're going to go for a walk with the baby and, and they're getting to look outside. And, you know, maybe you could notice things if, if, if that's, if you feel like you could do that. But I think really kind of picking a time that you shine in your uh-huh. day, even if yeah, it's for right. five minutes and just know like, okay, for these five minutes every day, like I can commit to that. And I think just knowing that making that much time every day happens at least. And mm-hmm. then you might be surprised the more you care for yourself and see that counselor, take that medication or mm-hmm. get that acupuncture or acupuncture or whatever it is that is how you're helping yourself that you might find other moments that you could add to that. But knowing right. on a really hard day, I did my five minutes and Perfect. And that's okay. And I and I and I'm talking to people about the importance of supporting my child's language. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These are just gems. I'm so grateful that you're bringing all of these tips in because I know how many people can use them. And what I want to highlight uh, from what you said is that, you know, if five minutes is what you can do, that that's fine. Um, yeah. I, I hear sometimes almost the opposite of from people who feel like they have to constantly be stimulating their children and doing something and engaging them and whatnot. And like, I, I don't, 
you don't need to constantly be doing it either. And sometimes they need their own break. Um, Yes. Like kids need silence and have a chance to look around and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, be curious and whatnot. We, we, somewhere in the middle is fine. Yes, exactly. A little bit of interaction, a little bit of um, distance. mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that tummy time and that pause babies and kids have processing time. So even if they are using some words or are making some sounds, they need time to process, to respond to us. So if anything, part of my healing journey was to slow down and learn how to rest and what that meant and not feel Mm -hmm. guilty about it. And then also just being able to pause in those conversations with your kids, that lets them show up. Because if we're taking up all this airspace, Mm -hmm. there's no place for them to show up. So it's if you're feeling less talkative, that's okay. That's where you are that day in that moment, those weeks, those months. And the more resourced you are, the more talkative you'll want to be in a real right. purposeful way. So I would love to also know more. Clearly, you have so many good gems, both from your professional experience and personal experience. And I assume that when you said you were writing before that you were writing about your, your experience. And I know you've mentioned that you have a memoir. Um, yeah. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I started writing really to kind of save, save my life. And I've been working with Molly Carol May, who's an author of yeah. the body full of stars and the, her postpartum memoir. And it's been a journey to, to take things that were kind of reflective Mm-hmm. Um, pieces. And I had so much of it that when I, when I took it to Molly, I was like, Molly, I, I think this could be a book. And, and I, I think other mothers and parents and, you know, communities could be, could be helped by this. Yeah. And um, so she really supported me to, to complete a manuscript, which I have, and I've been trying to solicit it to publishers as well mm-hmm. as agents and things like that. So it's kind of taking it on a life of its own in the sense of, I'm less anxious about when it comes out, though I would love for it to come out sooner or later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm still in that kind of the learning curve of how do you get a book published? What's right. saying? So it's it's with some some um, people having some other read throughs right now, um, having been with some agents and kind of getting some feedback. So that's hopefully forthcoming. Um, but yeah, share- exciting. There's, thank you. It's kind of a, it's a hybrid of my experience, a kind of so a memoir, but also this research that I found mm-hmm. um, and things that I don't think have made it really into mainstream that really, at least for my training as a speech language pathologist, I learned that there's a better prognosis with education of the diagnosis. And mm-hmm. so once I could learn more about what was happening to my brain anatomically, biochemically, I could have more patience with myself and I just yeah. had more of a context about, okay, this is what I'm working with. This is about how long it will take to, you know, recuperate my adrenals and, 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 and work through that adrenal fatigue. And so it just helped me, help me heal with just that education. So I want to, you know, share those, those things as well as my kind of personal journey of my insights into meeting and befriending my inner critic and meeting my inner child and seeing how she was inadvertently sabotaging my parenting and why mm. setting boundaries were so hard. They still are hard, but they were even more hard then and things like that. So, um, yeah. Oh, fantastic. That's great. I mean, from, I do, from my readers who've been first, they're like, this is so great. I've learned so much. And it's very useful for people to have information and education on what's available to them. Even if let's say they hear all the steps you took in your healing journey and they decide that one or two of them might work for themselves, uh, sure. but, you know, yeah. they didn't know about it before. Uh-huh. It's, it's not like somebody has to do your exact healing journey in order to oh, also feel not. well, but that, that you're sharing it and, and, and making that public for other people to learn from along with researched information and, and education and whatnot that supported you. I think it's so valuable. It's a, it's a winning combo. Thank you. Yeah. I, when it was, when all of, when everything was kind of shattering around me, I thought I can't be the only one this is happening to. Right. Like I have to, I can, I have to take notes. I have to write, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. I have to document because this is so hard and I, I, it's not going to have just been me that gets through it. Okay. There's right. other moms that I could mm-hmm. feel that it either has happened and it was a long time ago for them and they need validation or it hasn't happened to them yet. And they need some 
guideposts, but it just felt bigger than me. Mm-hmm. And if like, you know, one mom is help because she reads it, that was the whole point. It was, yep. that, that was enough. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure you will reach way more people than that. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's, I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, what's really interesting about putting stuff out there, even like a podcast like this, or certainly a a book, um, is you don't ever really know once it leaves your mouth, once it leaves your hands and, and your, your mind, it goes out into the world and you don't know where it's going to end up and how it's going to impact people. And you'll be, you'd be lucky to hear back from a couple of people, but it is always more impactful than, you know, the handful of people you might hear back from. It's just, you know, every, everybody will get the gem that they need and whoever needs <laughs> to find your book will find it. Right. I trust yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience and your knowledge. I, I just know that a lot of these gems along with your personal experience um, are going to be so helpful for our listeners. No, oh, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you once again, Emily. Really, really, really valuable information here. If you guys would like to get connected with Emily, please find her online and on Instagram at Emily Adler Mosqueda. For those of you listening, please do share this episode with whoever you think could benefit from this information and support. If you've been listening for a while, then you know how important it is to share this information. Make sure people have the awareness that these conditions and these situations exist so that they know they can get the help that they need. Thank you so much for being with us. Until next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts.